Hey, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur, with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hey everyone, this is AJ, your journeyman entrepreneur for another episode of Beyond Eight Figures. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. Yes, the show is about learning from entrepreneurs who've gone beyond eight figures or sold a business beyond eight figures. Some currencies, that's a little bit easier than others. But today I wanted to actually change it up. It's a two concept part. Today we're going to talk with an entrepreneur who's on his journey towards eight figures. He has a great background. He was very, very involved in corporate space, supporting entrepreneurship. So great background there. But his new business is really something that I think more entrepreneurs should look at as part of their business, how to bring in his offerings. So I've known this guy for years. We're both members of a business group called Dynamite Circle. We've drank way too much in Bangkok and way, way wrong side of midnight. Stuart Townsend is a great person, wears the coolest shirts you will ever see. And he's wearing a terrific shirt today for our show. You got to check this out. We'll post some pictures of him on it. But then also he has this great background and is doing some really cool things. So welcome to the show, Stuart Townsend of Channel as a Service. Good morning, AJ. And thanks for having us on the show. It's appreciated. Hey, Stuart, thank you again for coming on the show. Like I mentioned in the intro, you and I have been chatting a little bit right before here. This is a little bit different of a show because for two factors, you're kind of a guinea pig for two things I've been wanting to do with the show since I bought it, is one, have conversations with folk like you who are entrepreneurs on the journey. The concept of being beyond eight figures while being a number to a lot of people is that like exit thing. But most of us, definitely myself and a lot of our audience, are folks who are building businesses with the idea of getting there. They're not there. So rather than always focus on being all about the exit, I wanted to talk with someone like you who's also working on his business, growing his business, having decided to become an entrepreneur and where you're going with your business. And then later, which I think also is really cool for us entrepreneurs who are building our business, you run a really cool company called Channels of Service. And it's something I've played around with a lot, but I've done it scattershot over the course of my career. And when it's done well, the things you talk about, and I'll leave this later, but I just wanted to start. When it's done well, I've seen 10, 20, 30% incremental revenue from significant size businesses just from utilizing what you offer. So I thought we could talk about your journey, talk about you as an entrepreneur, and then talk about how people could use channels of service as a way of increasing their businesses, specifically SaaS. So now that I've kind of stamped on the lead, would you mind telling us a little bit about your journey to becoming an entrepreneur? Because it's a cool story. Yes. Oh, this this is going to be quite an unusual journey because I didn't touch upon this just sort of in the pre-show, but I actually started life selling steel which is not normally how you get into IT. It was flat roll steel. I run that into the computer sector, into an organization that used to make all the PC cases for Dell, ironically enough. So I spent 10 or 12 years doing that. And the sort of lessons learned from that is I'm not very good at cold calling. I can tell you that. I'm good at organizational stuff, but I realized that wasn't my aspiration in life. Not, there was nothing wrong with it, but it was going to be a, a sort of fixed-run career path. It was either you did sales or you became a senior sales leader well, that's what you did. So I actually went to university part-time for around about, I think I did my six, five years. So I did uh, a couple of degrees over about five years because ironically enough, I'm not sure what it's like in the rest of the world, but in the UK, you have to have a degree to get a job in a corporate. It's like, it's changed a lot now, but I'm not 20 anymore. This was 20 years ago. 
Um, You're younger than me, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you could have a degree in the history of um, Coronation Street, which is a soap opera in the UK that's been running for longer than I've been alive, um, and you can get a job in corporate. So I had to go to university part-time at night, and at the time I had my little boy, he was just one, got that, and then I actually get into the punchline. I got a job at Sun Microsystems as one of the last interns. I was one of the more mature interns because I was 30-plus. Everybody else was just out of uni and uh, wanted to go and party every night and shave my hair and do some weird things. I was like, no, we've got a job here to do. So yeah, <laughs> some, some microsystems for you know, 12, 13 years and essentially doing channel business development around that for quite a long time until the last two or three years, I got a role there, a creator role, running a startup program, a startup accelerator. And the idea was that Sun had lost selling out to Google and Facebook and that sort of thing. So I suppose I was a little bit late in life, but that's when I found out about what entrepreneurs truly were in the digital sector. Because there was things like open coffee and tech events going on that I had no idea about whatsoever. Just no idea. When were you running that accelerator for Sun, working in that? 2007. I know it very well. 2008 was my first Future Web Apps, where the chaps that run Dig, Kevin and somebody else, I can't remember the names now, came on stage. And literally, the event, the space in London by the docks, just hundreds of girls and boys were about 14 years old smashed the place and came in because they were on stage live and, and i turned around to a colleague going and this was our first event in in sort of startup land i was like what the hell is going on here this is like some weird craziness thing and they at the time they were rock stars absolute rock stars so yeah so it's 2007 2008 so i i sold to spotify did a couple of million dollar deal to spotify sold them their first storage we had last fm and again we were trying to capture these young entrepreneurial organizations before they went off and started buying um, other products or using other operating systems. It was the most amazing job in the world. I met these really sort of inventive and creative young people and older people as well, building businesses that our sales team had no idea about. So I went to 10 Downing, Scott McNeely, and to meet all these guys and girls, he was blown away. It was just amazing. If Oracle hadn't acquired Sun, I would still be working there now. Hand on heart, it's the only company I can say that I would have worked for for life because you had an entrepreneurial spirit in the company. Yeah, it's funny. I knew, given that I've gone from the early 90s through that whole period on the edges, sort of in the digital marketing agency world, little teeny burst into startups. Sun was, you know, I knew people were there and it was like, you lucky bastards, you're working with Sun. You know, you're working at Sun because they treated it well. Like, I remember one company I joined for all of four months. Our whole goal really was to get enough money so we could get a Sun server because it was so cool and it was so much more. And there was some game, like some web server-based game. It would have run 10 times faster than the Sun Spark. <laughs> you know, it was like, we want to have that as our, you know, as our life. <laughs> Network. Yeah, with the products and everything, everybody loved the the products and they loved the company, and they all everybody wanted to work there. It's just unfortunate that it, it took a bit of a bad steer because it was ahead of its time. I created the startup program. We took it to the US as well. We were just building out cloud data centers to compete with Amazon, so I could then go into startups and offer them Amazon type cloud services. It was amazing. But then, unfortunately, Oracle came along. Some was in a dire sort of financial status, and Oracle bought us at. 10 or $12 a share, something ridiculous. And that was no more. So I stayed at Oracle for about a year. They they didn't believe in startups at the time. They didn't sort of believe in cloud at the time. It was still very much database centric. And again, no bad times. Oracle, great people, everybody worked with it. They all wanted us to sort of stay and integrate, but it just wasn't the right atmosphere for me. But one of the companies I had sold to when I was at Sun, which was a company called Datasift, and one of three organizations on the planet that had a license to, to resell Twitter's firehose. And, and that is truly the every single piece of data that Twitter had going through the platform, which was astronomically large, we would process and store. And then we had historical data over time as well. So there was Datasift, Fujitsu in Japan, and Ginip. It was exciting times and around the whole Twitter ecosystem. Twitter had pulled back on the development platforms, so no developers were allowed to develop against the API. 
So we were the sort of choice that you could go to. You could still get access to some data, but but limited. So it was a C++ built real-time app. You could build filters against the data. And I started there, and it was, I think, about 25 people in Reading. Just took a chunk of money, but they were all developers. And I came in, and it was like, what's the job? Let's build a team. But it's just everything. It's a startup. It's not like corporate life, Stu. And literally, if, if you've worked in a corporate, and then you go and work in a, a small organization that's growing quickly that's when you know what work is it's like 12 hour days yeah i can't do it now but then i could keep up but i'll be doing calls with japan at 11 o'clock at night and the next day organizing pizza for the developers for a hackathon the day after going into the city presenting to fintechs about the financial data you could get from twitter and that's where i really sort of thought you know i was on the other side in corporate from from an entrepreneur aspect but from that side it's like oh this is amazing running a business like this is good and it's not it's hard you know nick had to constantly find money, get finance, keep her really happy, hire, you know, it's sort of a lone wolf type thing. But I saw a vision then. It's like, this This is great. This I don't want to be on this side. I don't want to go back into corporate. I can't go back into a big, large organization where you're just a peg because you can't do anything. You have no impact. And you can't be entrepreneurial because you're bound by process. Yeah. From what we used to call the more traditional path of entrepreneurism, <laughs> You know, you were in corporate, you, you know, your series of jobs. And then as the world started changing, as the tech scene kind of became larger and larger and more conferencing, you kind of got pulled along into this journey. And you have this great because it's like you built up your capabilities and your skill sets from one to the other and kind of took them to the next level, got this new level of experience, but developed to that next capability and next ability level. And then again, and then all of a sudden you're sitting here at the startup, it's whatever it's going to take to get to that next level. So what happened with Dataset? So I think it was like two or three years it was there. While I was there, I created this event called Big Data Week, which I couldn't do in a corporate. So I hosted free events around big data for a week every year. I had half a million people attending those events. It was all free. I did that on my own for a year. And then I got a partner to help me out for the second year to do that. And that was amazing. That drove a sort of a personal brand aspect, but just interesting space as well. You know, you could go and create a subset of events with half a million people attending with little skill and little tools and little money <laughs> you know you couldn't do that 10 or 20 years ago but as you say things were changing you could do that and then i got approached by zendesk it was christmas one year and basically they were looking for somebody uh, a director to head up building out channel for them across europe and it was an offer i couldn't refuse to be honest it was just you know great package it was pre-ipo it was an exciting time i could change the direction of what was going on and build it from scratch so i jumped ship said bye to data sift you know, again, still personal friends with Nick and went to Zendesk and, and started the journey again. They were they were less than 250 people, just took their last round of funding, getting prepared for an IPO in two years. And I thought Datasift was hard. Zendesk was the same. I thought Zendesk would be easier, but it was like, no, it was, it was the same challenge again. And not from an internal process or anything, just so much work to get done that was exciting and creating things from scratch and testing, experimenting building channels, even it worked, looking at implement integration partners, building referral partners. And again, you know, learned so much at Zendesk about how channel is different in SaaS compared to corporate land as well. You know, another aspect around that, which corporate land, it's sort of January, you get your, I suppose your marching orders of what to do and it's programmatic. It's like, go and do this, go and work with them and get on with it. In SaaS land, it's, you decide what you're going to do and you go and experiment and test it out and see if it works. If it doesn't work, you just stop doing it and do something else. So it was awesome. So I was there for about four years. But by this time, God, late 40s, traveling four o'clock every Monday, home at 10 o'clock on a Friday because I live in Lancashire. I don't live in London. It's a four-hour round trip every week. And it was just like, I'd got to King's Cross and it was literally just, I can't do this anymore. I just need to stop. I need to stop, go and do something I want to do. And literally, I left, I think it was in the summer, and I just took a little bit of time out before thinking, what am I going to do next? Good and bad thing. That's when it went a little bit passion. That part of the sort of journey, yeah, it went a little bit wrong, but it's come, it's come back around again. Well, that was, if you don't mind me kind of sharing a little bit out of school, that was around 16, 17. You and I both 
around the same time became members of Dynamite Circle, which is kind of a weird mix of wannabe four-hour work week and people running real global businesses. It's like wannabe tech bros to like real interesting people who are quirky. And then the Adams. I never know how to explain the Adams in the group. But what was interesting is you and I met there and I know you've been experimenting with what is your thing. So did you go through a process or was it sort of like, well, I can do this. Oh, let's try this. Like everything in life, isn't it? you learn by your mistakes. And sort of I've learned I'm no good at investing because I'm risk averse. So I get in at the wrong points and I should do what I'm good at, not things that I'm not. So basically I left uh, Zendesk, took a bit of time out, took a job in sort of a digital role across Lancashire, which was basically a government funded role to build and incentivize digital services across the region where I live. So I did that for about 18 months and that was awesome. I met loads of companies. I didn't even know they were on my doorstep, these companies, million pound companies that were sat on my doorstep doing SaaS. So that was exciting. But that's when I made some errors because essentially I was sort of not cocky, but I was sort of quite relaxed about what I was doing. I invested in a blockchain type business and that lost me my savings, <laughs> quite a significant amount of savings because I just didn't do due diligence. I was looking at sort of it from various things, but blockchain and sort of certain components, it was, it was blockchain sort of monitoring cannabis farms in the US. Yeah. Trying to get investment around those sort of things at the time. Anyway, it's done. It's gone. It's history. And then I also opened a furniture shop a hundred miles away from me. <laughs> ironically because i like furniture like design and again i'm no good at running a retail store i'm no good at investing in businesses i'm no good at investing in stocks so what i found is i'm really good at doing channel stuff but it took me about two years to realize that, that why don't i actually go and set up a service solving the problems that i used to moan about when i worked at companies which is um you start a, a SaaS company and um, you're brought in to build a channel and you think it's going to be amazing, but nothing exists. And what happens is you're on a commission-based salary. So 50% of your commission comes from earning revenue. Normally, that's that's guaranteed for six months. It takes longer than six months to start driving revenue through channel when nothing exists. It takes longer than six months to get the partners and the strategy and get it in place. So you're looking at 12 to 18 months before you may see revenue. And that's a challenge in loads of SaaS companies. Technical co-founders tend to find it difficult to understand the benefits of it. They hand it to direct sales. So it's like, there's just loads of challenges and misconceptions. So I was like, right, okay, I'll just go out to my network. I'm setting up channel as a service. Let's try before you hire. I'll come in, I'll bring some knowledge. And let's see how it goes. And I've been doing it ever since. Yeah, just randomly got some clients and it just went from there. This to me is very fascinating as a concept to look at running a business. It sounds like what I really like is this idea that you were trying different things and this kind of happened. Because I also remember referencing the Dynamite Group. They have an in, you know, members-only message board. And there were some on and off discussions. And I think right before you started doing, when you're still doing Cannabis One and probably some others, there were some questions around different channel ones. And I would always pop in with like one or two things around affiliate. And you wrote this kind of really deep one. And I think it was how to look at channel you know, and stuff like that. If I remember, it was like someone was asking just about like how to add a referral program to their SaaS. And then all of a sudden, like six months later, you were using the term channels of service. <laughs> it was like a time period. I, I totally forgot about that, AJ, but you're right. I wrote a long form article on there because it was just really bugging me. <laughs> just about, you know, questions that come up and stuff. And it was like, I just took some time. And I think from that, it sort of cemented the fact that there is uh, a misconception in, the, in, not in the world, it sounds too grand, but you know, there's a misconception out there about what channel means and channel is selling through third parties. It's affiliates, it's referrals, it's resellers, it's distributors. It's just basically not selling direct. That's all it is. I've been, what has been known in the industry as a super affiliate, affiliate who generates more than a million dollars a year. I've also owned with my previous agency we had won awards at, you know, bought a very small OPM outsourced program manager and brought it into the company. And we won an award for Link Shares, which is now Rakuten's, you know, agency of the year. And I used to joke, and if I told the CEO of Fortune 500 or a global company, we did affiliate program management, they'd be like, 
yeah, we got an intern somewhere way, way back there that kind of handles that. If I told them, oh, we do strategic partnerships where we get other people to generate millions of dollars of revenue for you, where you only pay for the revenue they generate, they're like, oh, let's go have a board meeting. So the fact that you look at it as an overall strategic way, I think is very interesting. Even now in the industry, kind of is treated like, well, no, that's this, that's that, that's this. It's very siloed and segmentation. And so when I was at Zendesk, I was working very heavily with some partners in Malta that were in the gaming sector. And, you know, that gaming sector is driven by affiliates. I can't remember what the event was called, but these guys and girls were flown in on private jets and boats because they were generating themselves like a million dollars a month in affiliates for the companies generating million, hundreds of millions. It's just an indirect sale. It's just a term that's used, but it's still an indirect sale. But affiliates that are sort of looked at as second class, it's not second class. Affiliate is a referral. It's, affiliate is just a, a mechanism. Yeah, but it really frustrates me because it's just, it's a very simple concept in the sales world. You have a product and you want to get it to a consumer or a business. How you get it there at the lowest cost is just a method. And that method is you hire loads of direct salespeople, you do loads of marketing, or you can blend that with going through affiliates, referrals, resellers, et cetera, third parties, give them a cut of the margin, pay them something and get that deal in. And that's in its simplest form. There's no grandeur around this classing to me affiliates are just a powerful mechanism to get a product out to a market at a low cost to consumers or businesses that require it people are making money that, that's it it's, it's a very sort of simplistic view so as you were going was channels like a series of oh let me help you with this i'll take care oh i have an idea for you and then you pull it together or did you say you know what i'm seeing all this craziness why don't i put something together and see if anyone's interested I'd like to say I was really structured and came up with a business and put it all together. I did do it back. Basically, I used to work with a partner and met them when I first started at Zendesk, to be honest, in, in Rome. I first started Rome in Zendesk. I had to go to Rome a week later for a, a Microsoft Inspire event. And this lady that I met had always said, if there's an opportunity to work together, I'd love to work together. I was like, yeah, so would I. And we worked together at Zendesk. And then she went off to a different role. I left Zendesk, did some crazy stuff. And it was actually her who approached me and said, look, I've got an opportunity here. I can either hire somebody or could I contract you to do some work around working with our Microsoft distributors? Because we've built this program. We want to go and test some channel models with them and some outside parties as well. And that's how it started. It was literally, it was like, I never really thought about that. What we're going to charge and... And, and that's where it came from. That's when I put the structure together of actually what channel as a service is and what it could deliver around that. Because at the time, I was coming up with these ideas of trying to do it self-service. Here's some training. There's some materials. It's hard. I have to be in the loop. It's not a sort of service that you can deliver outside of that. But yeah, it came from that. And then she introduced me to another company she was working with. And then another company, know, another chap that I used to know from Sun, that he used to work at Red Hat. He just got a contract and was a VP of a tech team and sort of seen some options around channeling sales. So he approached me and it all came from just networks, people that I know. Once somebody else had heard about it and I put something together and sort of promoted it a little bit, but not, not massively, it came inbound. People asking me about stuff. And that's when it's taken a couple of years, but now formulate is now more structured, obviously, than it was at the start, but it's it's a structured service, certain deliverables. It's got to be a certain type of client in terms of where they're at and buying and such. It's more structured. I'd like to say it's a grand plan, but no, I, I sort of fell into it type of thing, which I think is always the best way, to be honest. You find your feet by, by something like that. Yeah, a little bit of noise. I mean, my last agency I sold was literally because an ex-client of the company I was at, he had left and gone to a different company and he reached out and was like, oh, I'd love to have you take a look at this new product we're releasing at MTV. And I was like, yeah, let me go get the sales team. And they're like, no, 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 no. We don't want them. <laughs> we just want you. It was like, oh, okay. And yeah, a year later, I had a company again. Yeah, it's that kind of, all right, take it and then build from what opportunity gives you. But like, what do you see, you know, and this is kind of fun. 
because you and I, yeah. you and I have had some great drunken walking moments and discussions in the back alleys of Bangkok trying to find the afterhouse parties at some of the Dynamite Circle events. I will never forget Cabbage and Condom. Yeah. The restaurant. <laughs> I you're going to say about that one. <laughs> and then the usual place. Like, the food was really good. And it wasn't even on a main road. I mean, it was this huge thing, and it was a family restaurant, if you look at the Google results. And I'm like, what? Okay, but back to the point. How do you view, what are you looking at for channels of service? Do you have this goal you're going to build it and sell it? Is it even a consideration? What's that, you know, what's going through your mind as you think about the business as part of you, as an asset in your life? So if you were to ask me that pre-COVID, it would have been expand it and grow it and build it out more as a consultancy-based business. COVID hit, lost some clients, as we all did, got some new clients, but gave me time to sort of look at what I what I really wanted to do. So with channel as a service, I'm, I'm keeping that as me, as an individual, being more selective and going more up market in terms of the clients that I'm working with. As an asset, I'm growing out material, training material and content. That's what I'm just in the midst of smashing around at the moment. Essentially, my aim with channels to service is to educate the market and do more of that. It's not something that I aim to sell or build into a multi-person company or multi-million dollar. It'll keep churning over money around that. And the rationale is because I'm involved in some other businesses as well. So I'm bringing the skills that I have into three other SaaS businesses around that. But this is one that, again, I'm putting training material together and content to help educate people about what channel actually is around that component. But like I say, now what I've learned over the sort of years is I'm very selective about clients. I only work with a subset at one time. They've got to be a certain sort of size. And also I've gone up in terms of sort of rates and how I operate and stuff as well. Whereas when I started, it was I'd never done consulting before. <laughs> so I was, I was a little bit naive about it. So that's the plan at the moment. So I'm building out a set of assets and material and training content and that sort of activity to help. Because you don't get a job in channel you don't come out of university and go, you know what, I'm going to start in business development. It's not on the CV list of things. To be honest, you sort of fall into it. Anybody I've spoken to have said, is this what you wanted to really do? It was like, no. But once I fell into it, I realized it was about relationship building or strategic development. I really enjoyed it. And I didn't actually realize I was doing it. So it's about educating people that these sort of roles are there. But also, you look at the top corporate so microsoft 90 percent plus of its business goes through channel goes through cloud partners and it's growing so there's hundreds of thousands of people that work in distributors and resellers taking microsoft products to market the indirect sales channels and they don't realize they're doing that they don't you know it's just a role they've applied for online become a salesperson at a distributor they're working in a channel so how do you look at it or your goals, given post-COVID, and I know you have some cool things. I'm trying not to lead too far, but is this something you see as you're going to build up and give you a nice, good lifestyle, or is this something you would like to build up big enough that you sell or become acquired or acquire? What is that vision for the business? Yeah, for me, channels of service, I see that as being, I'll say, a lifestyle business, but generating money, and it keeps me happy and interested and makes me get up. It's one of those areas where, again, pre-COVID, I was looking to hire some people and grow it out. And now post-COVID, it's like, oh, I come back to know about risk. But also, it's just, it's a very sort of niche area in terms of growing up. I've worked with a couple of people that set up similar organizations, have helped them set up similar things, but they've been partners, so they're, they're sharing the revenue, and it could grow. The, the challenge is, is you need to find people that have been through corporate startups, done this sort of role, competent to, to handle it and get on with it, and that's quite rare. It's somebody that wants to take the risk to come and do what I've done. I, I sort of fell and stumbled into it. Somebody that wants to leave a job and take a little bit of a risk and come and work in a consulting business with the right skill set was hard. So I did have a joint venture with a chap in the States last year, and we were looking to grow it out. But again, he then went and took a job. <laughs> so it was like, right, okay, so we'll just start. We'll just get a client, and now you took a job. So so the barriers are the growth in this sort of sector and space is, is challenging unless it turns into a productized service or 
training, all that sort of thing. Delivering to clients a structured program, revenue, etc., has its blockers by getting the right people and maintaining the right people. It's not getting the clients. I can get more clients than you can shake a stick at. It's just, there's lots of opportunity out there. It's just getting the right people. I think that is really interesting because you have a bit of internet YouTube fame as a guest on an ongoing YouTube series, for lack of better. And your description of what you're building channels of service for really fits well for your guest spot on the show. Would you tell us a little bit about the van, the truck? Oh, the truck, the camper, the desert rat van. (laughs) So... Yeah, that's my mobile office. So it's a 1989 Mercedes 811D, which is basically a seven and a half ton truck that I've been building for four years. And it's got its own Instagram page. It's got its own YouTube site up and coming. And it's been built out totally custom from start to finish to be a mobile office. So it's got a a roof deck, water, solar, etc. I can go off grid for about two or three weeks with full Wi-Fi access all over. Your shower, because I've been in other kind of these campus, you made sure that the shower was stand up for you. <laughs> that to me was <laughs> peace and That was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, everything has been designed. I've designed everything myself. So the shower is uh, a custom resin mix with an imprint digital detail on it that's hand painted. I'm six foot two. I just fit in there. And the same again, everything has been hand painted and printed. And sort of, if anybody knows what Raptor paint is, go and search that. I've sprayed the whole thing in Raptor paint in a, a desert storm type color, Land Rover color. So it will stand out when it's on the road but yeah the, the idea was again because i you know i want to tr- i want to be slightly nomadic i want to like go to scotland and travel about a bit but still work i wanted a comfortable environment to do that so i've got a log fire in there solar water stand-up shower office space it drops down at the back i've got a roof deck so i can work on top when we get a bit of sunshine in the uk uh, and it's 24 and a half, 25 foot long. So it's pretty long, but you can still park it in a supermarket car park and stuff. Hook up Wi-Fi and yeah, just enjoy the dream, which was going to be last year, but now it's going to be probably later on this year. Well, yeah, you can still travel within at least the mainland of the UK. Yeah, I'm here in southern Spain and it's like, it would be interesting when a little more, you know, I think I finally got an alert that I'm eligible in the next few weeks to go get the vaccine. So that will be good. But like, when can we travel there? Because it would be cool to put that thing on a ferry and come on down. Well, that's it. The, the, the couple that built it, they travel all over the place. And a lot of work they do is in Spain or Portugal, Greece, and those sort of things. There's a traveling van community that just go around and meet up together across Spain, Costa del Sol, and that sort of thing. And that's the idea. It's not just to be in the UK. I want to go across Europe in it because it's, it's a big truck. It'll withstand any ferry crossing, crossover anything. It's a monstrous thing. It weighs, well, fully laden now, it weighs six and a half tons. As someone who is location and so therefore living on the coast of Del Sol, you know, living in 320 plus days of sunshine and blue skies, this concept of entrepreneur, you know, it's fun watching it change and evolve. It is not an easy journey, but it does allow us flexibility. And I love that you're using this to build this cool, I mean, you got to see the YouTube video. I started following them and I think I'd actually looked at like the coming thing and not even recognize it had a quick little blurb about you. And then I saw you posting, oh yeah, and by the way, I'm, and I'm like, shh. And literally, COVID hadn't come along. It was four weeks from completion. COVID came, we had to we had to stop and I would have been traveling about. But it is, I think we're in a genre now where, any age you don't have to be young to go traveling and be nomadic and entrepreneurial there's so many areas like you know look in the dc with all the events that happen around that and people that have met and and again you know it's not a new thing this was happening like when i was doing sun startup program in 2007 there's still people traveling and saying let's go to eastern europe get somewhere that's low cost sit here for six months code away do stuff build a product but also just meet different people and get different ideas not be bound by sat in the same office or working environment and siloed in what your preconception of things are because if you meet new people you find out what's going on in the world that's the thing that's why i love being part of communities because i want to know what's happening in different places what's happening in terms of technology and industry sectors, what's moving forward. Is there opportunities in different spaces we can jump into early on? 
you, you don't know that unless you start communicating outside your sphere of influence. I geek out on following a gazillion news feeds, but it's in the communities that you start seeing how people are using stuff that becomes interesting because almost anything cool is never what the original creator business XYZ expected it to be. It always ends up become living. You know, when it gets out there, it's how it lives. And communities like the Dynamite Circle, gazillion others, digital nomad groups and all that. I'm seeing more and more trends. And there's multiple trends. I love trends.vc's group and then trends, which is the hustles. They're great because you see how things are evolving, how people are playing with them and how, like what value they can pull out of them. Yeah, that's always fun. Exactly. And like you say, the sort of use case scenarios are not what people built or developed them for or string, stringing things together. So at the moment, I've been experimenting with my virtual voice on Descript and sort of virtual avatar that I'm having built. So literally, I can just drop them. I mean, I've tested Synthasia, but I'm also testing a company called Rephrase AI, a company out of India. I was on a call with them at eight o'clock this morning, just going through some product testing with them. And they're really sort of hunkering down, sort of coding and, and sort of making the product amazing basically but yeah the whole concept of i can just drop some text in it's my voice it's my avatar and i can put a virtual news feed in the back and i can drop it out or you can use movely it'll take an rss feed and you could do stock updates so you could do youtube shorts or tiktok or instagram to drive traffic to your site just by 60 second shorts of quick news updates which is the attention span of most people nowadays anyway send them to long form content so i've been experimenting with that for some of the businesses I'm involved in, but also, again, for doing educational pieces for channels as a service, I don't want to sit and have to record hours and hours of transcript. I can literally drop the text in, create the video, and there's my training resources. It's, it's happening, it's being rendered in the background without me having to be involved. I've done the upfront work. The script says 30 minutes. It's more like four hours of training. But now my voice sounds pretty credible around that. It doesn't have a lot of the tone and sort of cynicisms in there. But for training, it's achievable. It's like, yeah, boom. But I also love, you can use these types of services for onboarding as well, hooks. So personal emails go out going, hey, Stuart, welcome to XYZ. A lot of this activity is going on, but unless you sort of, in the mix of all these different communities, you don't you don't know about these use cases. It's funny you say that because I have a friend who always sends me Shaq videos for like my birthday or something happened. It's kind of kind of you know it is rapidly changing. It's funny because I played around with Synthesia. I'll have to look at one you're playing with. But like for me, it was realizing that how I write sounds very different than how I talk. I had to start writing as I talk, not as I write. Yeah, so I had to change my writing patterns and to make it sound a little more natural in there because you write, I try and write concisely. And it's like, wow, that doesn't sound like any type of conversation I've had. It's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, you have to put the text in there in terms of how you would talk rather than how you write a blog post. Because uh, it just becomes too, too monotone. Well, I would love to have you walk through your workflow because that is really fun. Because I've been playing around with some of the keyword research AI ones with you know content into then some of the content generation ones with the idea of like how do you create this workflow so it's not fully ready for consumption, but if you hand it off to an editor all of a sudden you're talking about content that can be ready for an audience at a fifth of the time and maybe a third of the cost. And this is only going to be speeding up and speeding up. And if you're using video, I mean, use it with something like Bonjourno, 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 whatever, the um, one where you do the quick little CRM video, like, hey, thanks for joining there's other workflow around creating automated newsletters so taking rss feeds and content and using products like raza.io it'll create a newsletter for you around a topic there's loads of these without even getting involved in zapier or anything so many amazing SaaS products now that you can bring in and that's what i'm using in channels of services some of those products so i've got my automated newsletter i don't touch it it's set up you can sign up for it you'll get a bi-weekly update of what's happening in the SaaS channel done 
I don't even know what it says. I don't even read it. <laughs> it just goes out type of thing. So it's keeping people updated. And you sort of semi-automated blog content generation as well. Hand it off to a, an editor and then they'll go through it and update it. So there is, there's so much out there, but I think it's, yeah, it's just great to sort of be part of these wider sphere of sort of conversations to understand what there is and, and what the use cases are and scenarios are. Let's start talking about channel as a service and obviously referencing your business, but the concept of channels to a business, would you talk a little bit about not just your avatar, the people you target for your business? What's the value case you see in channels? I always talk about channels as a way of growing your sales revenue without growing headcount around that. And the idea is you hire a direct salesperson, they hit a quota or a certain percentage, you hire another one and you backfill and keep doing that. Whereas with a channel partner manager, they're managing potentially like say 10 channels, 10 resellers who may have 10 or 20 salespeople. So you've got a wider spectrum. There's the other side of that as well, which is if you're a heavy lead services software company so your licenses are a hundred dollars but it's 50 grand of services channel loves that you don't want to hire lots of service but you don't want to be in the service business it's not good for your valuation what's good for your valuation is your monthly recurring revenue so channel can help take away that burden of delivering the services to end clients keeping your opex down from a headcount aspect around that and then the third pillar is around geography. US-based business, dead romantic and exciting. Let's come to London, Paris, Berlin, every major city we can. Let's open an office. Let's get some people there. Let's do all this stuff. That's great. Two years later, we get some revenue. Awesome. We've been running at a loss. I always say, if you want to get boots on the ground in a territory, test it out with a channel first. Have a small team there locally if you want to test that but test it out with channel so if you want to go into israel or a face-to-face -face cultural type selling entity get a channel partner to do it if you get somebody in tel aviv to go and do it not an australian in london sat on the phone ringing somebody in tel aviv doesn't work so there's the growing revenue through reduced headcount we can call it opex extending your services through channel partners and then geography, boots on the ground, testing whether your product will go to market in that environment if it's a cultural fit. And there's all other things around integration partners and things like that. But that's, that's the core value proposition that I see. Can you share with us a well-run, well-structured channel program? How much incremental are you normally seeing? I know your avatar is that half a million to a million plus you know, SaaS platform. What are they seeing percentage-wise? As incremental lift, uh, you can see 20 30% within sort of a year, quite shortly. Well, you know, a year is not shortly, but that's quite shortly around that. But you can start to see more after that the more you invest, obviously. And the world sort of structure program comes back to identifying those channel partners that are working well and doubling down on them and treating them with respect around that. But yeah, 20 30%. Is, is sort of a norm to to gain back against a reduced headcount. That's coming from one channel partner manager. There's external resources that need to attach to that, but that'd be through one channel manager. My main company is an insights as a service. We do, it's Insight Labs, and we focus on what do you need to go? What do you need? What efforts should you take to get to that next level of growth? So we look at all types of challenges, all types of efforts, you know, X, Y, and Z. And try and look at if you have their found if they have our customers, if they have the foundation set, do they have analytics? Do they have stuff? What do you see as kind of that base layer besides a certain size that they need before they can get going with channels? Simple question I ask is do they believe that indirect is going to add value to their business? If there's a no or a doubt or a seed, I'd walk away. Because the challenge is that you then try to sell into that business, the idea and concept, rather than actually building it out and developing it. And I, I do look now look at businesses by size, but I do phone calls to them and say, you should start a channel as soon as you can. I don't think you need to be 50 people and generating all this revenue. As soon as you start getting customers, they're your referral or affiliate partners because they're your ambassadors. So you get them to tell other people, do it from day one. Don't start thinking about it in day 365. And then as you get more and more customers, they've got potentially partners around them and they've got resellers and they've got this. So talk to them. Your customers tell you who your partner should be. 
it's not rocket science. It's just looking at it from a different set. My first couple of meetings and engagement with clients is, have you spoke to your customers about what partners they're using or how they found you? Okay, right, well, should we start there? Because <laughs> that's some low-hanging fruit there. <laughs> Has your customer brought you another customer? Yeah, they have. Oh, well, you know what that's called? That's called an introducer fee. That's a referral. That's an affiliate. Whatever you want to call it, just do 10 more of them and you get 10 more customers. And literally, it's simplistic. I always, I look at something called the customer lifetime and there are different equations out there that I say, look, you can kind of build them out and there's all these different parts of the equation. But one of the things is sort of the virality of your offer and you know, kind of break that out. Virality is like, if someone tells someone, what's the likelihood? How do you tell someone what value gets exchanged during that to then increase the likelihood of something? And it's fun because you can isolate out, okay, we need to have more touches. We need to work on conversion factors. So the likelihood of condensing that time frame. Oh, well, if we look at virality and the time factor of virality, if we add a channel partner where they're getting rewarded and we're supplying information, therefore the indecision gets, we're not condensing it really, but we're reducing it. It's fun because then all of a sudden an entrepreneur can look at their business and say, oh, the value prop is huge because I'm going to reduce the knock-on effect, but I need to have a foundation that decreased knock-on value is going to be creating more value than the cost of running the channel. Yeah, it's, it's that, like you say, it's that lifetime value and it's that the opportunity cost of investing in somebody. But again, you can do this without headcount or people literally referral. You can sign up for Referral Rock or any of the sort of software services out there, put a little signature on everybody's email, any touch points with the client, remind them to bring friends. It's all the Hotmail method just to kickstart things off. And I know the Hotmail story quite well, but I think some people may not know how that was the first big viral. Probably know about Dropbox and that sort of thing, but even then, they may not know about that. Yeah, Hotmail was the daddy of it all, but people may not be like, what's Hotmail? What's that about? So they imposed a get your free email you sent when you signed up with Hotmail from the very first alpha five users had a little line imposed on the signature at the bottom of every email that said, if you receive this from Hotmail, if you would like to get a free email account back when email accounts were crazy and paid enough to do, and most of us were an AOL or some dial-up service. And it just went out. And like within the first day they had, a hundred thousand is insane <laughs> just from those little free. This this was in a time when you sort of, yeah, email was you had to set up your SMTP server settings and go and find them and, like you say, dial them. It's like, wow, it's on the web and you click it and you sign up and it all happens and I don't have to pay for it. And yeah, and it just went crazy. When do you think it has a big the potential to have sort of an inflection point in a company's growth? It's when a company's got processes in place and it has some resources and some factor of sales and marketing around that. And that literally could be one person or two people. When the company's at that stage, it's got processes and it's got direction and it's got that locked down in terms of, right, okay, we can close sales, we've got inbound coming in, uh, we've got marketing, we've got materials, and it can prove that it can generate X amount of revenue and close the deal in X amount of days and the churn rate is X and the services are Y. Then you can go out to some partners and start to have a sensible conversation. Until you've got those valid points, you've got to think of this is a sale. You're going out to an organization to sell you, your product, for them to take it to their customers. They're going to invest. They're not just going, oh, yeah, okay, we'll just take that in and we'll just sell it. It's fine. No, they've got to invest in training, enablement, trusting that your product's still going to be around in 12 months, going out to their customer base and validating that and making sure it's not competitive and it adds value to them. So MRR aside, you just need to have those points validated so you can go out to a partner and have that conversation and answer their key points before they invest in you because they don't make these decisions lightly. They're approached by multiple vendors all day long and you've got to stand out around that. And for me, I think when I was at Zendesk, I experimented with a couple of ecosystems and, and they weren't right until I started talking more to Google partners and found it's complementary because we could go in with a, an aspect of you're selling these $5 a seat type things, you're doing upsell. Actually, what's happening is a lot of customer services stocked in, is in people's inboxes they're not going to cancel their email, but you can come to them a customer service solution that's complementary to what you're selling as Google. There's some lovely services you can attach to that, 
and it's $59 a seat. You make 30 points in each of it, and you can start with a couple of seats and then build it up. It's just a nice, compelling story. So I just built more and more Google partners globally. Just as a quick aside, you just referenced the 30 points on Google in joining a channel partnership both ways. So creating one, but then also joining an ecosystem. What is the concept of points? Which I, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Sorry, I jump into my acronym language. Yeah, so in, in a reseller model, what happens is, say a product, uh, a license is $100. I say street value, but $100 on a website that's being sold. So stuartscustomerservice.com has a product. It's an enterprise plan. It's $100. The reseller of choice would sign a contract and say, well, I'm going to buy that at $70. So they buy it with a 30% or 30-point discount. Um, they buy it at $70, and then they sell it at $100. So they're making $30 per license. And they can do that for the term of the agreement, the way the contract's structured. That could be a lifetime aspect, or it may be that those 30 points after year two comes down to 20 points, then comes down to 10 points. Again, depends on the maturity of the organization and sort of how long it's been around. When you normally start, it's like, we just need resellers. So we're going to incentivize them as much as possible. Five years in, we'll do a clawback and start to say, well, if you want to be a reseller, it's these new terms and conditions around that. And the same again in referrals or affiliates, you incentivize more up front to try and get more of them incentivized and moving and follow a similar model. And normally in that sort of space, it'd be less than a reseller because uh, a reseller is adding value there going through the sales and, and that sort of thing a referral affiliate were probably 20 or 15 percent and only for the first year of the deal or the value of the deal rather than being lifetime and such and affiliates i know do more of sort of lifetime value type thing but again the contract can be the contract it can be whatever you want you could give away 50 percent if you wanted to but it's just some standard averages to try and accelerate the market and once you've got the market accelerated then what you find is people that want to sell your product indirectly come to you as a vendor then you can change your terms and go that's great but actually the terms are this it's not what the these people are grandfathered they supported us at the start these new terms are what they are you can either sign up or not one of the things i maybe i was misunderstood but when you're talking about people looking at zendex when you look to see the ecosystem that would be best for you to kind of build up partners for Zendesk. One of the things I've started seeing and I really like is where people develop their own partnership programs while they exist within other people's partnership program. So it's like, on one hand, you're building up an audience, whatever, your traffic, your audience, your sale, you, know, you have your connection and you're monetizing a little bit by being part of an ecosystem. Hopefully you're also gaining leads from that ecosystem and finding good fit for your thing, but then you're bringing people in we're bringing you new leads that potentially you can monetize with your own, but then also secondarily in an ecosystem that you're participating in. It's just coming and going. So you've got a marketplace type model where you'd have integration partners. So Shopify, for instance, or Zendesk, they'd have a product that does X, but some clients want certain functionality and Zendesk isn't going to build it. So a third party would build that and put it in their marketplace. And like you say, customers would then come to them and go, oh, I bought that widget, it's great, it's awesome. Then they then take that product out and start to resell it through resellers. So they've got multiple routes to market in a sense. And what, what you're seeing in those sort of marketplace types instances is that People are creating multi-million dollar businesses based on these third-party products just in a marketplace. So the Shopify marketplace has created a couple of million dollar exits for individuals that have just built applications on top of that. One of the businesses that I'm involved in, we're just going with our Shopify integration over the next two weeks. And that's one of my plans for that route is to really heavily promote that component and then resellers as well but i think the shopify marketplace is going to bring more clients to us and we're seeing definitely over the last year or so more of a a respect for marketplaces as being a way of creating third-party businesses and can go out and sell through indirect as well this is getting to be a lot of fun and i think this even talks to being an entrepreneur is getting to be easier and more fluid the way you generate revenue so much of our focus i think from business owners is like, I sell X or we build Y. When the idea of where you sit, the amount of attention you do, the way you utilize the attention you generate and how that comes both from your main core, but then secondary, even tertiary 
we can go on and on. I won't push us into crypto because you and I have both been burned by crypto. Definitely, that could be a whole different call in itself to talk about that. We should do one talking about the syndicate pitches, yeah. <laughs> just like how crazy they are. Because <laughs> I had two that have ended up into people in prison, bought into ones that no longer exist. But yeah. On the marketplace piece, piece Nathan Lacter did a webinar about six weeks ago talking about it. And, and again, you know, you're saying about the barriers to entry. Well, literally... If you can build a product as a really small team, even just you and yourself, you can create a one-man million-dollar business based on these marketplaces. And people have done it. And he demonstrated that just talking about some of the companies in there. But and Shopify itself, just a marketplace where hit the right niche, hit the right problem, and, and that's it. You've got a business, and business that can be acquired. It's ridiculous. But yeah, I think going back to the entrepreneurial sort of aspect, I'm a bit later in life, but there are individuals out there that that can be 18, 14, 12 years old, whatever, creating these businesses, that the blockers are not there. They don't have to code. There's no code, low code. You know, they have to come up with a concept. They can outsource contractors. They can get some finance against it. It's just, it's an amazing time to be in and a great sort of inspirational time to see the changes and things that are happening around the world that mean that we're just starting to see the cusp of what's going to come out in the next sort of 10 years. It'll come from crazy places. What I'd be curious, as someone who's played a lot from necessity and stuff, is just, it used to be a little bit cleaner of like, okay, X businesses get started because you had to start a business. You couldn't pop up a PayPal or Stripe. You could do things through your own, but it was pretty clunky. And you know, I remember like you used to have licensing. Got Yeah, I need licenses all over the place, but no one pays attention to some of those location-based rules because we're not doing business on the location. Not that there are there are tons of businesses doing it, but many of us are not. So I'd be curious to see with all the stuff that's happening, is it still the same level of graduated success? Because it used to be like 80% of businesses never make it past 100K. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And you could kind of talk the business school statistical analysis. Now there's just so much noise that I don't think there's that the type of data is not as rich to understand what success and failure is going on in this cloud because so many people are in and out. People are side businesses, people are doing individual businesses, people are creating something and then they're off back to their job. It's like there isn't that type of news, but I have a feeling that while it's easier to get started, I think breaking through the noise and getting up past some level of success, and that's where I'm curious, is it making a good living? Is it easier to make a good living, but then harder to get exit? I think you're right with that point. I think it's it's easier to get started and make a living. So a chap that I know in Italy, I've signed up for a couple of his services. He builds five different products a year. So he's got Trendly that I signed up for. Paparayo around podcasts and, and that's his business he just generates five businesses a year he's great at building bots and scraping he puts some lovely front end on it simple subscription and i suppose his measure of success is he's, he's happy you know he's generating a lifestyle living he doesn't i mean he may want to exit he may want to sell some of them but i think getting above the noise you know look at the trend space or um, no code low code or in going india hackers there's so many business look at product on oh my god you know there's so many businesses launching and I think what you see is that they fail, they get to a lifestyle business or a revenue that's comfortable and then they go and do something else or they'll try and exit. It's harder to get to that million dollars, $10 million and see that what's termed as success. But it comes down to what's your success? What do you want to actually do? If you're in a lifestyle business and play jazz, that's successful. He's doing it. It doesn't work for the man. He works for himself, he does his own thing, and he's happy. But I think it is harder because there is so much noise now because there is product platforms like Product on or Indie Hackers and communities that you can get some initial awareness, but try to accelerate that. You've got to work really hard. I'm finding that at the moment with the sort of businesses I'm involved in that to get above the parapet and get some attention is harder because there's so much people in the space. A lot of what I do with Insight Labs, there are a million ways that you may be able to gain attention, noise, sales. But the reality is, if you're not structured properly, if you're not doing the base concept, like you said, if you don't know how people who hear about you convert in a reasonable manner to a customer, not 100%, not every step, but like 
someone finds out you have something and then becomes a customer, if it's scattered shot, shotgun approach, you can't repeat and you can't grow. But if you can put those pieces in place of like, okay, don't know if any one of these ones are in, but I know I'm going to understand my numbers. I'm going to understand we put X effort in this level of effort goes into doing Y. And then if something happens, we can wince and repeat or isolate it. So setting the foundation. Yeah, I think that's missing. But nobody knows about them. <laughs> that's the thing, into like you say. It's, uh, and that's the piece I'm doing at the moment is, like, is putting those processes so I can see where the consumer came in and they purchased, where they went through that journey, and then go, okay, that was a dollar in, five dollars out. I'm going to put more dollars in that space because I'm, I'm getting money out. And it is having those methodical processes in that you're always tweaking and tuning, looking at to be receptive to the market. And if you haven't got them and you're doing other things because you think that's making you busy, it's the wrong way to look at it. I totally agree. It's got to be, you've got to have those processes and definitions in place because once you know when the, where they're coming in from and they're converting and they're converting in a time period and generating value, yeah, just go throw throw more money in because you'll just get more of them. Just getting that basic concept because if it's random luck because you're a nice person or because, Stuart, you really do have the coolest shirts on the planet, you're probably getting some level of customers purely on the shirts because I've seen shirts all over the planet now and there has to be a certain, this is you know, the fun of the internet. There are people who buy only from businesses that wear flower children. It's a market for that. But other than that, yes, other than that, understanding that process does help. Yeah, I love that all this possibility is happening. I use analytics. I'm tracking things, but why or this? It's funny that the most important thing from being an entrepreneur, from a business, is still always, why are you doing this? It's a simple why question and keep repeating that until you get a definitive answer. That's the most powerful thing in the world. And then, you know, like, so if someone is interested and they want to run through your gauntlet of your qualifications and they want to beg you, channelsofservice.com is your site? Unfortunately, it's missing an A in the middle. I couldn't get that full domain, but it's channelasservice.com. Improvisation, but it's actually called channels of service. But yeah, channelasservice.com. And, and again, like I say, I do free calls. I want to spread the word about people, understand what indirect is. So if you want, anybody wants to book some time with me, just chat, understand what indirect is, put it in my calendar. I do like to talk a bit around that. But I also like to meet interesting companies and businesses and see what they're doing as well and see if, again, they don't have to become clients. It's just interesting to see what's happening in that space and what's going on. Sign up for my newsletter, so get some understanding about that and then get a bit, bit more content. It's all automated. It's all good content, but still sign up. One of my new experiments and then eventually you can also then get to see my little digital avatar which is me and my digital voice doing updates as well over the next couple of weeks i can't wait to see your avatar and doing this but i can tell folks also at least in us and spain google searches channel as a service does come a google search on that does bring you to Stuart's company we will put the links in the show notes as always we'll make sure everything is there so please check them out and follow them. And I hope to see more the rat van. Wait, am I the rat? Uh, Desert rat van. Yeah, there is there's a story behind the name, but yeah, okay. Desert rat van will be coming shortly. I've been chatting to them, cool. so it will be coming back shortly. Hopefully in time for some sunshine. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I can't wait to you know, have you back on and talk more about some of this and just to geek out on some of this. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again. I hope you really had a fun time on the show today. Talking to Stuart was a lot of fun. He's incredibly smart, and his journey is there's a lot to be learned and a lot to take into consideration about where he's business. As we've been talking about, the concept of entrepreneurship is rapidly changing from when us old fogies started off to nowadays, where it almost seems like a dream and a prayer is all you really need to get started. But that said, there's still a lot of work. And Stuart's journey and what he shared with us really kind of shows the thinking that can kind of go and taking something from just a concept to a really powerful business. And as I said earlier, more businesses in general should be thinking about channels 
and how to bring them in, how to bring partnerships, affiliate programs. I'm a big proponent that the same thing, you just do slightly different vocabulary, so different pricing models and slightly different outreach efforts. But Stuart brings it in wonderfully into a very tight thought process. And businesses like ours really should consider channels more in how we grow and run our businesses. We have links in the show notes below for Stuart, for Channel as a Service, for the rat van. And I'll try and see if we can get a couple pictures of his shirts up also because they are truly, truly classic. All right. As always, this is AJ, your journey manager for You've been listening to Beyond Eight Figures. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. I look forward to talking to you again. And I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. Bye-bye. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.